0: On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk.
1: Slightly belatedly, um, getting to the front pages of the Sunday newspapers. We'll start with the Sunday Independence. The headline there Please look after my kids, don't let them forget me. This is an exclusive interview by Rodney Edwards uh, with the survivor, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, who was the survivor of that train accident uh, just outside Sligo last Wednesday afternoon. She has given an interview to Rodney in which she talks about seeing her best friend lying motionless yards away, crawling over to her aunt Jessica and the mother of four, looking at her as she makes one final emotional plea. She said to me, "'Please, Rebecca, look after my four kids. "'Don't let them forget me. "'Tell them I love them from the top of their heads "'to the bottom of their toes.'" And I will always love them. I think she knew she was dying. I think she knew that was it, uh, are the, the words of uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, who's given that interview from hospital. Uh, she is determined to try and get to the funeral tomorrow. Uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, by the way, Fine Gael forced into a climb down in a long-running coalition row with the Greens over giving the guards the power to use facial recognition technology to investigate serious crimes. Helen McEntee with us after 12 o'clock, so we'll talk about that in more detail then. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times, Neil Varanko given an interview to their political correspondent, Claire Scott. He was speaking in Jersey on Friday and he has robustly dismissed any suggestion that he could be ousted as leader of Fine Gael. There's no vacancy, there's no contest and there's no challenge, he declared in an exclusive interview and far from being blindsided by reports of dissatisfaction uh, with him inside the party the Taoiseach said if you go into any staff room in any business or workplace in Ireland you're going to find a few people that don't like the boss and they have their reasons and I can understand that but there is no vacancy he also denied suggestions from within the party that he wasn't enjoying being Taoiseach uh, this time around that's the front page of the Sunday Times Uh, the Mail on Sunday has done an interview with the parents of Boy B, one of the two teenagers who was convicted of the murder of Anna Creasiel in 2018. Uh, they have said that their son is no monster but he admits that he should have saved a 14-year-old Anna when she was being attacked by his friend. This is the first interview given by the parents of Boy B. It is four years to the day after boys A and B were found guilty of the murder of Anna Um Boy B's father tells the paper he was a stupid, stupid boy, but our child isn't this monster that people are calling him, he has said in an interview with Gareth McNamee. And I've left this one till now because I suspect this is where we're going to kick off our chat of the Sunday papers. The front page of the Business Post. The headline, Michael D, Ireland is playing with fire in a dangerous drift towards NATO. Uh, The headline over this interview uh, with Barry J. White, Ireland is playing with fire during a dangerous period of drift with its foreign policy and it must avoid burying ourselves in other people's agendas, President Michael D. Higgins has said. In an exclusive interview with the Business Post, President Higgins has given a strongly worded warning about deviating from Ireland's traditional policy of what he calls positive neutrality He said that the country finds itself in a particularly acute moment, noting that the most dangerous moment in the articulation and formulation of foreign policy and its practice since the origin of diplomacy has been when you're drifting and not knowing what you're doing. He added, I would describe our present position as one of drift. Uh, We are joined in the studio to discuss what's uh, making the front pages by Aileen Hickey, who's the CEO of ParentLine and a barrister, and also by uh, Louisa Meehan of Woodview HRM, a dispute resolutions expert. Um, I'm going to come to you, Louisa, because dispute resolutions expertise (laughs) is something which may be useful here. Now, I don't mean to get all lofty, and, and I'm not talking specifically about what Michael D's opinion is on this issue. But the president of Ireland is elected foremost to be a protector of what's in the constitution. And the Constitution specifically says that the foreign policy of the state is an exclusive preserve of the government, of the executive branch. So the person who's supposed to be making sure that the dividing lines are observed is getting into an area which is specifically not his preserve. And I wonder whether he might have gotten himself into trouble by doing this.
2: Well, I mean, he, he, he has been known to get himself into trouble in this way a few times. And I mean, he's calling for us to remain neutral. He is not remaining neutral in his comments, and I would agree. I think he's overstepped the mark. And whilst... I personally agree with a lot of a lot of what he's saying in terms of Ireland's neutrality and and the, the issues in terms of NATO. He should not be the person saying it. There are other people who have the capacity to say it, who are in the right roles to say it. His role is about remaining above the politics of situations like this whilst he is president. And if he doesn't wish to be president and he wants to talk about politics, away with him. But while he's in that role, he needs to adhere to the rules of that role. And I do feel that he's overstepping the mark here in mm. coming
1: out. Do you think people care? Do you think people on the ground are are as as bothered by this lofty idea of separating who's allowed to say what as we might be in studios like this?
2: I think so. No, I do. I think it matters because I think, you know, at the end of the day, we need to have somebody who's representative of all people, of all views in the country. And that is his job as the president. It is sort of... Uh, I suppose, superficial in some ways. You know, it's representing those at various state events and all that kind of stuff. But when he comes down and he says his opinion in relation to political views then he is isolating those individuals who have different opinions. So I agree broadly with his opinion but lots of people don't agree with that and and so they're isolated and they also deserve to be represented by the President. So I think that there is an importance to remaining neutral in that position. Um, Not necessarily before it or after it but when he's in it. Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: Um, Alien Hickey uh, first of all the again parking what he said and whether there's merit to what he has said Uh, whether it's wise for the president to get into this kind of turf. Uh,
0: No, uh, uh, it it isn't wise. Uh, I mean, I think, you you know, there's a reason for the separation of powers. So, you Mm -hmm. know, there are four uh, main kind of fields, if you want to to, to put it like that. So there's the presidency, there's the Oroctus there is the government and there's the courts and there's a reason why they all have their own areas and there's a reason why there is a separation of powers in the first place and you know the president yes he's a previous politician first of all but he's now in a a position of of presidency where this is not an area he should be getting into now I know you just said they're not getting into what he said, but I mean, I well for now we might get into what he said in a second, but just the principle first. But but on principle, he certainly. I mean, I mean, I suppose I feel that he's got himself into hot water a few times recently, (laughs) and as he's coming to the end of his presidency, I think he's probably delving a bit uh, deeper and crossing more lines than what he did previously. Mm. Um, And you know, I suppose in a way, what has he got to lose? But. You know it is a constitutional separation of powers, so it's not put there arbitrarily yeah so you know you, you need to stick within the guidelines of what you're supposed to be talking about um and he clearly isn't i mean you know I suppose delving into what he actually said yeah. i mean i mean i I do think Ireland has a very um almost delusionary um uh, um uh, view on, on, its, on its neutrality. I mean, I think we're very self-congratulatory on our neutrality mm. while not really being neutral at the same time. I mean, because you know, if you actually go into what he actually said, I mean, to be neutral, if we were entirely neutral, we wouldn't be allowing aircraft to refuel in Shannon. First of all, we would have a much. Well, a, lot of, a
1: lot of people, of course, would rather we weren't. They think that it's a breach of this neutrality Absolutely. that we try to. Bang uh, we we the chest would about. have
0: a much bigger defence force. We only have about ten thousand in the defence force. We we should have a much bigger defence force if we were actually neutral. I mean, you know, again, going into if Ireland was invaded, I mean, the the, the likelihood is, you know, I mean, you know, very small. But mm. if if we were invaded, we would expect France and Italy and Germany to come to our aid. Mm. But. We're saying and the right now, the, yeah. the
1: ones we share the island yeah, with. Yeah, but
0: yeah, but would we do it on the other side? So you know, you know, I, I mean, I think we're, you know, there's there's a huge hypocrisy about our neutrality. That's that's how I feel.
1: Yeah, there's there's a broader point in theory, uh, Louisa, that and this this kind of kicked off last night after um, news of of what Michael Lee had said got into the public domain. People were saying, well, you know, he's he's the person with the national mandate, that he's kind of got mm-hmm. more authority to speak up and this sort of stuff. And, and if you think about it more broadly, the president is the only person uh, in, in public office in the country whose mandate comes from the whole country, mm-hmm. that everyone else is elected by their constituency or by graduates of a university or whatever it is. He's the only one who's elected by every adult citizen. Uh, and it's weird then that if we start losing our rag because he has used that mandate to stand up for what he thinks is right.
2: Yes, and and I see that point. But because he is elected by the entire country, he needs to represent the entire country. And no one political view is necessarily representative of the entire country. You know, if you look across the water, the person who was in this sort of presidential role for the longest was Queen Elizabeth, 70 years. People love her or hate her. But you can't question that she maintained an ability to remain neutral on political issues for the most part, Um, whereas President Higgins has very strong political viewpoints on a number of different issues. Mm -hmm. This isn't the only one. And whilst you may respect his his viewpoints, and to be fair to the man, I think the majority of times that he has spoken Mm -hmm. out, it has been certainly from his viewpoint Mm -hmm. to be to the... Uh, protection of the underrepresented yeah. in Ireland so it ha- he may have some justification in what he's trying to say but that isn't the job the mm. job is to represent the, all of the people no, I, I, all I, I of mean,
0: the I think yeah. but I, I suppose on that I think practically every president we've had has crossed the line at some stage you know and that would include Mary Robinson Mary McAleese I think they've all crossed the line at some stage but that doesn't make it right I mean there is a reason for a constitutional separation of powers
1: Mm. Um. somebody has asked you know if the president's job is to protect the constitution then wouldn't it be his job to protect the constitutional position on neutrality now this is this is very lofty stuff for 33 minutes past 11 uh, <laughs> on, on a Sunday morning in the middle of June <laughs> the Constitution doesn't say that we're neutral. Um, the Constitution forbids us from getting involved in certain stuff, like, for example, certain common European defence things under the the Treaty of Lisbon. But it doesn't specifically say that we are militarily neutral. The Constitution says, for example, we can participate in a war as long as the Doll uh, signs off on it. Um, so it it prescribes some limits on what we can do, but it doesn't say that we can't do anything. Um, well,
0: we have we have had a long standing position of military neutrality, which is what we, you know, we, we, we you know, postulate all the time, Yeah. effectively.
1: Uh, someone else texts in to say, Gavin, there is no such thing as neutrality. Uh, it's in the eye yeah. of the beholder. Uh, it depends on how others see you, not how you see yourself. I'm sure, for example, this texter says, Russia don't see us as neutral. Uh, someone else says, uh, well said, Michael D. He has spoken for the country poll after poll shows Irish people support neutrality. Um, is R- I, where- I think actually,
0: just going back to what you said there, I mean, mm. I, I do think the, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine Certainly has influenced the way people think about neutrality and uh, the way we think about our defence and security policy. Um, and you know, I, I suppose that m- might be why mm. more people might
2: support Michael D. in what he's saying now.
0: Uh, and,
1: go ahead. sir, sir I
2: was going to say I would agree, and I think Russia, the Russian invasion, has impacted on. But if you look at the piece on page eleven of the Business Post, Karen Devine talks about neutrality, and she's saying there's three cornerstones to it: so non-involvement in wars. We're not involved in the Russian war directly. We provide support. In terms of mm. protecting Ukrainian citizens, yeah. but we're we, not—we
1: we train the armed forces, we but train we don't them, them yeah. but we don't yeah. give them
2: exactly. So you know, we are supportive of Ukraine whilst not being involved, maintaining independence and impartiality. And you can maintain independence and impartiality whilst also saying Ukraine, in our viewpoint, are the country who are being invaded, and therefore they are the country that need to be protected because our neutrality has always been along the lines of protecting those that are are being impacted. And then it's about peace promotion and non-aggression. And I think it's fair to say that the Irish military over the years, you know, they've done good and they've done bad, but they are internationally recognised as peacekeepers Mm. and they have a very high uh, level of respect on an international basis in terms of being able to go in to really difficult situations that other countries' armies would not be allowed into to help protect citizens who are being harmed. Mm. And that is something that I think is very precious. We may not be perfect... Mm. But I think it is important.
1: Uh, One texture says, Michael D. Higgins is absolutely right in voicing his view and I agree with him. I applaud our president. Somebody else uh, who signs off Vincent. I wonder if it's uh, my old uh, TV colleague Vincent. (laughs) Uh, It might be uh, because this person simply says, thundering disgrace. Uh, Which, of course, is a loaded phrase because the last time that a sitting minister described a president as a thundering disgrace, uh, first of all, that wasn't the verb that he used. That was the family friendly version of a (laughs) sanitised outfit. But it was about uh, it was about defence issues and it resulted with that president deciding to to leave the job uh, around 50 years ago. Um, Worth stating for the record, um, there is one quote attributed to the president here about the makeup of the consultative forum on security policy that the government has put together. And the president is is uh, critical of the fact that it seems to be made up mostly of, quote, the admirals, the generals, the air force, the rest of us, and the formerly neutral countries who are now joining NATO. He asks why there's no representation from countries that are still neutral, like Austria and Malta. Uh, and he's critical of the EU for its increasing military posturing and criticizes Emmanuel Macron's recent comments that uh, the future of Europe is of as NATO's most reliable pillar. Um On that note, I did ask a spokesperson last night. Uh, for Micheál Martin um, for for the reaction to this. Um, The spokesperson did say in the course of a long thing that this wasn't a binary discussion on neutrality or on NATO membership and it's not intended to be. Uh, The aim of the forum has been to prompt a national discussion on security policy and they want to hear from as many people as possible with as diverse a range of experiences, expertise and views um, as possible. That was, however, before the article was formally published and I did ask afterwards uh, what this spokesperson made of the criticism of the makeup of the forum, and whether the Taunashta was happy that the comments were within the President's constitutional role. Mm. Uh, Didn't get a reply last night. Asked again this morning. Mm. Didn't get a reply. Mm. Asked the spokesperson for Leo Varadkar last night and again this morning if they were satisfied that the President was within his parameters. Haven't got a reply. Uh, One would think, now I'm just surmising here, one would think if they were happy that he was talking within his bounds that they'd have replied and said, yep, no problem there I think the fact that I haven't gotten a reply granted at an unsociable hour on, on a Saturday night and on a Sunday morning Who takes Sunday that, off? Well <laughs> the, the politics doesn't stop that's, that's, that's why I'm here on a Sunday morning uh, just surprised that I didn't get a reply uh, from, from any of them if of course I do get one uh, I'll let you know I, I,
0: think the, I think the positive thing here Gavin is though that there is going to be a four day discussion on this because I think you know it, it, it's been that kind of underlying you know undertalked issue that needs to be discussed mm. you know m- much more publicly and people need to, to form a view as to where we are where we currently are and wh- where we're going towards yeah yeah uh, we do let's not yeah. get
1: bogged down says Shane and Tip uh, on it whether the president is allowed to talk about neutrality let's focus on what he's actually saying he's dead right Um which is but and I wait. hear but you. Wait. But, but, but I that's
2: not the point shame. really, is it? It isn't. And I think well. the thing is that we can have the discussion without the president leading the yeah. argument. Yeah. yeah. what's this, the
1: What's the Marge Simpson gif about, well, he's right but he shouldn't be saying it? Um, it's what one of those Simpsons memes. Uh, very brief. before we go to a break because so I do need to get to a break and I've got another interview to, to play after the, the, the next ad break. Um, there's an awful lot written about um, Leo Varadkar's stance uh, within Fine Gael and the fallout to last Sunday's papers all three of which the broadsheets had pieces speculating about uh, Leo Racker's future as he's given an interview uh, as I mentioned to the Sunday Times in which he says um, there's no vacancy and there's no challenge um, which seems like the sort of thing alien that you would be clear to say but of course there's no vacancy because he hasn't left yet but that's not it's not to say that people aren't happy
0: Absolutely, but you know, he, he. I mean, obviously, he's going to, to straighten his back and say that. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, but his position is very, uh you know, it, it's at very, you know, uh, you know, it's. It, it, I suppose it's at the tipping point. I mean, you know, I mean, it's at eighteen percent. Was the last. um
1: There's one. and It's twenty percent in one of the polls today. I think. Yeah. The Sunday Times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of texts that are still coming in, by the way, about the interview with Pat Carey earlier. Joseph in Galway says, great interview. He's one of the few politicians I would trust, a decent man. Uh, and Anne, also in Galway, says, poor Pat Carey, lovely gentleman. Not a person who's a fan of politicians, but he did always stand out as a man of integrity. Just, just goes to show that we shouldn't believe everything we read, she says. Um, on that note, um, just because Pat Carey made some, some commentary about the conduct of um, the Irish Independent and its publishers, Media House Ireland, I've got a statement in from them this morning. Uh, They say we welcome the conclusion of this matter and that the proceedings against the Irish Independent have been struck out. In 2015 we published an article on a matter of public interest which was the subject of an Garda investigation. It did not identify Mr Kerry and it was widely followed up by other outlets who had uh, added additional details. We subsequently reported the DPP's decision in 2019 not to pursue any charges in the matter. We recognise that this was a difficult p- period for Mr Casey. We take our duties and obligations as a news publisher very seriously and we will continue to publish articles that are in the public interest in a matter that is appropriate and responsible. We note that the Garda Commissioner has made a statement to Mr Kerry in relation to the matters for which he, as head of Angarda Siakana, is responsible. Uh, That's the statement provided to us this morning uh, by Media House Ireland, the publishers of the Irish Independent. Going to take a break, lots more to come when we're back after this still joined in studio by Aileen Hickey and Louisa Meehan to go through what's in the papers but I do also want to bring in uh, another guest who I spoke to uh, a little bit earlier there is understandably a lot written in the papers today um, about the awful tragedy uh, in the waters off Greece uh, earlier this week 750 people who were trying to make the journey from Libya to Italy um, capsizing in a boat um, only a few dozen um, rescued but it's thought that hundreds more uh, likely to be dead and unlikely at this point to be recovered um, I spoke to Sally Hayden this morning Sally is the author of my fourth time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. She's also the Africa correspondent for the Irish Times. She wrote a piece in that paper this week openly questioning how it is that deaths like this have become so normalised. I started by asking her, does she have any idea as to how it has?
3: Yeah, I mean, this isn't something that I'm asking really the last few days. It's something that I'm asking now for years. And actually that piece in the Irish Times, I, I wrote pretty much a version a few months ago when there was another massive shipwreck um, yeah, it, it's completely horrific. And I think we need to keep reminding people of the actual scale of the overall death toll. Since 2014, more than 27,000 people have died or gone missing in the Mediterranean Sea trying to reach Europe. And that's said to likely be an uh, underestimate because people are going missing without even being documented. Um. Yeah, how has that been normalized? That's a question that I've been asking myself for years, like I said, and I've wondered, as well as a journalist, have I played a role in that? You know, when we put, for example, migrants in the headline, is that kind of a way of allowing a reader to switch off and go, you know, kind of disconnect from the fact that these are people like us, you know, people with families, with hopes, dreams, people who are going to be mourned. Um. And yeah. Uh, On top of that, like not to overly plug my book, but I do think that there are systems that are being set up that separate people making these journeys from the rest of us and stop us from hearing their voices. And, yeah, listeners can read it to get more information on that.
1: Well, on that note, because it does seem like a very salient point given what we've been discussing this week, do you you want to give us a, a little insight into the sort of systems that you believe are being set up to create this distinction in people's minds?
3: Yeah, I mean... So basically, I started reporting on this quite extensively in 20, uh, sorry, 2018, um, focused on the central Mediterranean, which is known as the deadliest migration route in the world. But I uh, began getting messages from people who were inside Libyan migrant detention centers, and they basically had tried to cross the sea to get to Europe and had been intercepted, um, you know, through EU policy, effectively forced back to Libya and locked up indefinitely. And they were prohibited from having phones. You know, they were like, even communicating was very, very difficult and very, very dangerous. And for me, like getting those first messages and suddenly like being in communication with people who are being impacted by the kind of, you know, what people call fortress Europe now, the increasingly and uh, anti-migration policies, that really made me realize that we're not hearing the voices of people making these journeys, certainly not enough. And, you know, that that, yeah, there's, you know, I don't know, there's, there's like a lot of systems in place, like when we hear sound bites from politicians, when we even hear press releases from the UN and others, they might not actually be totally accurate as to portraying the situation hmm. and that is going on. Uh, this is
1: maybe get, getting a little bit into the weeds, but just th- those people that you mentioned there, if they're in Libyan um, detention centres, are they effectively being punished for trying to flee in the first place?
3: Yeah, so what we have since 2017 is EU policy that... Um, It's kind of a circumnavigation of international law. So responding to what they saw as kind of the general European public's desire not to have any more migration to Europe or to very much limited. Um, There's been a lot of very harsh policies that have been enacted that are basically trying to securitize borders and make it very, very difficult for people to cross them. And one of those is in the central Mediterranean. Um, Basically, the EU conducts surveillance, so flies helicopters, planes, drones, and spots refugee boats. But then also supports the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept those boats and force people back to Libya. And there, they're generally locked up indefinitely. Okay. And that's that's a circumnavigation of international law because European vessels would not be able to return people to Libya. And and that's been, you know, the ICC prosecutor, among others, an independent UN fact-finding mission has said that, um, this is leading to crimes against humanity against refugees and migrants.
1: That is uh, Sally Hayden, who's the author of My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. She's also Africa correspondent for the Irish Times. Uh, We actually recorded a far longer conversation, which we just don't have the time uh, to air all of uh, today. So we're going to put out the whole thing uh, as a podcast that'll be available on the show page shortly on newstalk.com. And on the Newstalk app, powered by Goal out of that full chat uh, with Sally Hayden um, of the Irish Times. Uh, still joined in the studio, meanwhile, by uh, Aileen Hickey, who's a barrister and the CEO of Parentline, and Louisa Meehan of Woodview HRM. Um, there is one piece which we were just discussing there, um, the the front page story on the Mail on Sunday, an interview with the parents of Boy B, um, who was convicted four years ago today um, of the murder of Anna Creeagel. And... Um, Louise, in particular, you had just some thoughts on, on some of the broader themes that's raised by by going back over Boy B and what he did and how society's treated him.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I read through the whole piece. It's just so desperately sad. But my question is really about the criminal justice system. And when we're looking at children who were 13 years old when this incident happened, the two boys in the, in the case, being treated in what is basically an adult system... I have grave concerns about that. You know, from the very beginning in terms of being interrogated by Gardy, who I'm sure treated them with kindness, but it's still Gardy in a guard station, a very intimidating situation. Boy B clearly, based on the evidence from the guards and his parents, caught himself up in knots of not telling the truth and not maybe describing what happened accurately. How many of us at the age of 13 would have done anything different? We wouldn't have known, how do you say what happened? Something that is such an adult thing to have happened. And to be able to articulate it effectively and answer questions from strangers mm. without having real supports there, so I think we need to step back and say, putting in rehabilitation supports, looking at the root of what caused the problem in the first place, yeah. and prevention, and you know,
1: rather than punishment. There, there is broader questioning, and they'd be interested to get your perception on this with your your professional hat on as the CEO of, of a, a group like ParentLine. That for adults, although there's so much talk about um, rehabilitation and diversion programs and and the likes and what can be done when somebody is in prison, that certainly for adults, the point of prison is to be a punishment. It's to deter you or to Mm -hmm. deprive you of your liberty uh, in exchange for what it is that you've done. I wonder whether we kind of need to just reimagine that when it comes to younger offenders, whether the point of prison should be just to deprive you of your liberty or whether there should be something... A bigger part 100%. of the puzzle.
0: Now, I mean, I suppose the difficulty here is that you have to see it from the point of view of the victim and the victim's family. So the victim and the victim's family are understandably going to look for some form of punishment on you know on, on, on the attacker mm. or you know, on the on the on whoever conducted the crime. Um but, you know it is very difficult to see what is to be gained from a 14 year old being put in, in, in being put in prison for 15 years I mean you know and, and that's yes. the term that's, that's mm. what they were both but, given but and, and Boy B was, in particular it, was,
1: it is worth saying that like, this was a, a premeditated action and, oh, and there was a lot of debate I, within the judiciousness about whether to try them as adults or children
0: I, no absolutely, absolutely they
1: reached but, their conclusions for a reason
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, now, and again, you know, and I think Louise referred to this, I mean, I suppose you, you can look at it, it, it particularly, I suppose, from Boy B's point of view where he didn't actually conduct the murder. But I mean, yes, but he was a coward and he was weak and he certainly could have stopped what was happening. Um, but I, I suppose what I'm going to say here is that, you know, I mean, as the mother of you know, boys of around that age, you know, if boys don't see consequences. That boy certainly didn't see consequences. The boy A probably didn't see consequences either. Now, that doesn't take from what they did and from the death of Anna Crigel. Um But, you know, it, again, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it's very difficult to get... Like, th- those boys will be close to 30, Well, particularly boy B, will be close to 30 when he gets out.
1: Yeah. Like, what if, he, if indeed he does get out. If yes. indeed he
0: does get out. Um, like, what would what have been gained... You know, by that, I mean. I mean, I think, and you referred to it there, Gavin. I think possibly there are ways to reimagine, you know, ensuring that you know the the punishment has been given and that the Jews are paid, mm. but without maybe doing it in. The way that it's being done currently, yeah. and actually, and that's actually a much wider point of view because actually, there there are a lot of people in prison, you know, for for short term sentences, and you know they don't even get to go into programs because they're there for such for such a short period of time that there's no gain whatsoever. Mm, you it, know, it, it's of, just uh, there's overcrowding it. in prisons, and, and you know there's a huge issue with the whole prison system. Yeah. Full stop.
1: Uh, there is one um, passage which really jumps out for me from that interview with the parents of Boy B, um, recalling the moment that her son's sentence was mm-hmm. read out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boy B's mother. Said it was shock. I was numb completely. Shock. I couldn't speak. He, uh, meaning Boy B, turned to me and said, "Am I guilty?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Yes. Uh, they found you guilty." Um, that he just so, such was the overwhelming um, moment in the court that Boy B wasn't even sure if he had been convicted um, of the murder of Anna. Can I just say
0: one one other thing? Evan? Sure, and it's, it's, it's slightly different to what you were saying there. One thing that I have a huge difficulty with, and every time I've reread anything to do with the Anna murder. At some stage in the narrative, it is repeated what the boys said about her, you know, and I'm not going to repeat it here and there, but, you know, their description of how she was perceived by others and what she wore and all the rest of it. Mm. I mean, I don't, I, I I hate the fact that that's repeated so constantly and, and there's no necessity because, it, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, sound good for her and, and it sh- certainly shouldn't be out there.
2: Yeah, mm. and I think it comes back to like we need to educate young people so that yeah. they don't end up in these situations in the first place. Yeah, and if they do end up in the situation, we need mm. to provide supports so that they don't end up out there again, or that other people learn mm. from it. Like we really need to be more creative in our solution finding. Mm.
1: Uh, just to finish on a, on a slightly lighter note, by the way, I do want to say that I'm thinking of the parents of, of yeah. Anna Krajil uh, today because this it's a very difficult thing mm. even for them to be confronted with if they go into a shop and see that mm. uh, on the papers, uh, page thirteen of the Mail on Sunday. Um, this is the the real um, modern difficulty a traditional luscious mouthful of softly whipped cream paired with a chocolate <laughs> I should be reading this with a Marks and Spencer's voice this isn't just an ice cream this is a traditional <laughs> luscious mouthful I'm available for voiceover work that's voice what you need softly whipped cream paired with a chocolate flake or a tangy fruit filled scoop or three of intensely flavoured handmade gelato. The country, it seems, is lip-smackingly divided. All of this at a time where they're getting rid of the chalk ice, Louisa. Like, what's what's, what's, become, what's become of the country?
2: Well, I don't think we should get rid of any ice cream. We should just increase the variety and the options
1: and we should maintain
2: all of our ice cream because it is so precious. We seem to have an obsession with ice cream in this country, you know, making it and most certainly eating it. There's a, in Glen Ely where I live, we have a fabulous ice cream parlour opened about a year ago and people travelled from miles around to get ice cream. It's brilliant travel from my,
1: my would you my ever friend. travel miles for an what, ice cream I, I think
0: you know what, I have, what I've done what I do with ice cream so I buy ice creams maybe three or four times a week you know ice creams that I put in the freezer I've taken them to hiding them in the bags of frozen broccoli <laughs> <laughs> because
2: the, <one> bit <laughs> of is the only way right that
0: I know there'll be an ice cream left <laughs> is if they're hidden in the bags of frozen broccoli uh, the the, 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 cho- the death of the chalk ice I have to say I, I do find very sad because I'm very fond of a chalk ice um, having that said the fruit pastille ice cream is by far my favourite there's, there's
1: a lot to be said for the fruit yeah, yeah, that, a breed of uh, Linala ice cream Irish ice cream in County Clare uh, says customers are now much more discerning if there's a raspberry ice cream they want to taste the raspberry and see raspberries in it. If it's yeah pistachio. I think
0: people have gone too fancy I have to yeah. say that you know and all that fancy sorbet and <laughs> stuff yeah. I mean I, I don't know what was <laughs> do you know actually my favourite times were when you go to the shop and like a lady would cut you a slab of vanilla ice cream and stick I a wafer it on either help. side I
2: have my wafer I love some slab of
0: right. ice cream Well
1: <laughs> on that note look it's 18 degrees and it's a lovely sunny Sunday in the middle of, uh, of summer so we'll let you home to your, your wafers and everything else yes. uh, Thank you both uh, for coming in today Aileen Hickey who's a barrister and the CEO of Parent Line and Louisa Meehan of uh, Woodview HRM Dispute Resolution Expert
2: On the Record with Gavin Riley,
0: Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Great minds think unalike Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.